Have you ever read a good book that was thought-provoking and wanted to talk about it with your friend? Well, you've come to the right place because that is what we do here. Welcome to the Bruz Bookshelf with your host, Lenny Gibbons. And Walter Atkins, a Real Talk book review podcast where we give you raw commentary on the thoughts about the content. Enjoy. Because of the amount of content in last week's episode, we were only able to cover chapters one and two. In this week's episode, we will be picking up on chapter three and introducing you to the jockey syndrome. It is defined when the establishment attempts to change the rules when competition begins to gain ground. We also learn about the first black player to play Major League Baseball in 1883. Then through an owner's meeting in 1889, black players began to be systematically banned from all levels of white control baseball. We will cover Rule Foster and how his Negro League gave black players a platform to showcase their talent and style of play, and how a single college football game changed the tapestry of the American landscape. Chapter three. and chapter three, it talks about the focal point of the book, and that is the jockey syndrome. The jockey syndrome is nothing other than a sport that was being dominated by black people and how you can get comfortable with a sport that dominated by a particular race until it's not. And chapter three, we talk about Isaac Murphy being a successful jockey. Walt, you want to touch on Isaac Murphy? He had a long reign for about 20 years, right? So if you can imagine like Isaac Murphy was of the likes of, let's say like a Floyd Mayweather of today, where he enjoyed like basically a millionaire of his time, you know, because the amount of money that he would get uh, per race and the amount of money that he would get just for showing up and he would not turn down no kind of competition at all. Uh, so. Writers would say that he was a very dramatic person when it came down to the wins, right? So he would race the entire race with his horse and he would hold off to victory all the way to the last second and he would always win in like dramatic fashion. And that would drive the crowd crazy. And he was like a competitor competitor. No matter who it was, he was willing to go to the race and then beat whoever it was, but he always would win. So there came a time where that was a the sports writers and the people at the time that were looking for like someone else of the white race to be able to compete with Isaac Murphy. So along came this guy by the last name of Garrison. He was considered a great white hope where he would win races as well, too. And so, yeah, he was snap, flamboyant where Isaac Murphy was smooth. It was smooth. Right. So Isaac Murphy has that soul style of grace and Snapper Garrison. He just went, but he wasn't like as smooth <laughs> as uh as the original. He was more so a copy, put it like that. Yeah, Isaac Murphy and the other black jockeys dominated the sport of horse racing from the 1600s all the way up to the 1890s. Right. That was like a, the America's sport. But the America's sport was done through horse racing. And the jockeys were, at one point, insignificant part of the race. The people used to always focus on the horse. But they knew that the plantation owners and the money came from the horse racing and also the money came from the trainers and the jockeys. So if you were a slave and you were a jockey or if you were a trainer, you got special treatment, treatment so special, so much so that you almost forgot that you were a slave. So you had you had some slaves like Harry and Tubman once said, I would have freed more people if they would have known that they were slaves. Yeah. So you had people that dominated horse racing like Isaac Murphy, Austin Carter, Charles Stewart, Abe Hawkins, right? 
And all these people, they were real complacent. So it was one time it was mentioned that Charles Seward was a slave trainer and became wealthy, but was never set free. However, he made so much money and he had so much authority that he thought he was free. He also said one time, he said, I have groomsmen, stablemen, and I have all these people under me and I have nobody over me. Hell, it's almost like I'm free, right? Until so they sold it. Right. Yeah, he got sold. And it was during the time, during a lot of slave rebellions. They weren't getting involved in that. They didn't have any comment on that. And it almost comes off as they thought that they were above being black. And at one time they thought because they had money getting treated differently and had all this fame that they weren't slaves until reality sunk in until one of them, he was set free. It was Abe Hawkins. But then the owner kept his son a slave to give to his son. Just when you think you free and you think that you're on their level, they'll tell you, no, you're not on my level. You still a slave. Yeah. Abe Hawkins situation kind of, kind of rubbed me the wrong way. The main reason because of the fact that the owner was willing to to let Abe Hawkins free, but then he would keep Abe Hawkins' son for his son in a sense of like, you know what, you can go free, but I want to still use your offsprings to make money for my son, even when I'm gone. That's what it like, was. Man, you know what? I mean, you know what? His his dad his his daddy was good to me. I know for a fact you come from the same lineage and the same bloodline, and you're gonna be good to my son as well too. Right, man. They call slaves human tools with a soul, so they That's just looked at us as people. We were like an oxen, cow, a mule, but we had feet and legs and arms, and we had a brain with a soul. But that was just pretty much it. We didn't have any feelings. We didn't have anything like that. They didn't. There's right. no way you can own a slave if you look at them as a human being like yourself. But in the chapter, it also talks about the first black man to play in Major League Baseball. And it wasn't Jackie Robinson. It was Mr. Moses Fleetwood Walker. <laughs> now, <laughs> now, there was another black person that preceded him. Five years before, I just want to make a correction. The book didn't talk about it, but I did a little research on my own. His name was William Edward White. William Edward White was a mulatto, and he passed for white, and he lived as a white man. So since he lived as a white man and he didn't consider himself black, we're not going to consider him black. So we're going to talk about Moses Fleetwood Walker, who was black, but thought that he should get treated differently because he was black with privilege. Now, Moses Fleetwood Walker was born to a well-to-do family. He had a mama that was a homemaker, and his dad was a pastor and a physician. And Moses grew up with five brothers and sisters, sipping the tea and drinking the wine. He lived on the other side of the tracks. Moses Fleetwood Walker had white neighbors. He grew up in white schools. He was educated by all white people, and he had all these white friends. So what Moses Fleetwood Walker thought that he was immune to the racial injustice of America. So he went on to Oberlin College, played baseball. Everything was all good. He even earned a scholarship to go play at the University of Michigan, where he played baseball and studied law, him and his brother. Then Moses Fleetwood Walker went on and started playing for the Toledo Blue Stockings. And then a few months later, his brother, Wally Walker, and he was the second guy 
to integrate baseball. So Moses Walker spent his whole life thinking he should get treated differently until he started giving signals to a pitcher and Moses was playing catch it. And he told him, hey, throw me a curveball and the pitcher threw him a fastball. Moses got up, ran over to him, said, hey, man, I told you to throw me a curveball and you threw me a fastball. I caught the, I, I caught it. But um, you going to listen to me or not? And <laughs> the white man said, look, man, I don't know where you from or what world you living in, but I don't take no instructions from no niggas. No niggas. No niggas. <laughs> but uh, I tell you what, um, I tell you this. I'm not going to tell you what to do, and I'm just going to catch everything you throw at me. So he was catching fastballs and curveballs with his bare hands. So he was a bad dude, right? But as time went on, there was this famous, renowned baseball player played for Chicago named Cap Anderson. And Cap Anderson was like, I ain't playing against no nigga. And if if y'all bring him up here, we ain't going to play, right? So they had to forfeit the game because the manager of the Toledo Blue Stockings said, look, if you don't play us, then you forfeit the, the gate and then you forfeit everything else and we take the whole gate and we win the game. So he had to play them. But as time went on and as the pressure started getting to him and as Moses started growing tired of the racial bigotry and turning the other cheek to make the white people feel comfortable and then he got hurt, then Toledo cut him. Right. And then so he had a, a small stint of playing for this team, playing for that team, working here, working there. Time went on. Then he finally got picked up by a team in Syracuse. Then one day he got tired of that shit. And he said, you know what? I ain't playing today. So he sat in the dugout with his street clothes on. The spectators in the crowd started calling him niggas. And, you know, because everywhere he went and everywhere he played, he had to deal with his teammates throwing racial epithets at him. He had to deal with the crowd throwing things at him and booing him and calling him all kinds of names. So at that time, the crowd started coming in on him. And Moses pulled out a gun and he pointed at a dude. He said, you come up to me, I'll blow your fucking brains out. (laughs) (laughs) But since he was so good, and there's one thing you will realize, if you're an athlete and you're helping them win, they will look out for you as long as you're helping them win. So they mulled that over. He dressed out for the next game. He eventually played his last game in 1989. But there was a meeting, an owner's meeting in 1987, two years before he played his last game, that they would give no more contracts to black players. And nine years later, blacks was banned from all levels of the white-controlled baseball. But I digress. So you had a couple of years later in 1891, Moses. yeah. Tired of these white man shit, right? Right. He leaves and out. He leaving out of a bar. A group of white men approached him. They they started calling him all names. Moses pulled out a shank and shanked him a motherfucker. <laughs> right. <laughs> Somebody ended up dead. <laughs> and then he ended up he ended <laughs> he ended up going on trial and got acquitted by an all white jury. And that was some shit, man. That was a cra- that was a crazy that was the craziest thing to me in this chapter, man. That he got acquitted by all white jury. God. Yeah, but you know what I thought? What? I thought about that too, man. I thought about that long and hard. One, I think that he was getting fed up, 
and the world was showing him who he really was. I think that with his training as an attorney, they said that he was a great writer. So obviously he had a brain on him. But right. even with that, coupled with the fact that he was a sports guy. And sports one guy, thing right. that I learned, man, them white folks love their athletes, right? Yeah. So because he was a sports guy and he was a hell of a catcher catching fastballs with his fucking bare hands. <laughs> I think that kind of played yeah, into it. It had too. to. I mean, the, the procedure of him being a sports guy and then also where the incident took place at and then him also being a, a great writer and an attorney himself as well, too. All that compiled together definitely uh, took a toll on probably the, the, the influence of being able to t- have the, the, the jury give him a, a not guilty verdict because any other place, any other person in America that did not have those kind of backgrounds and things going towards them, a black man in that particular time would have been hung. Not a hung jury. He would have been hung, literally hung. Yeah, because he's been he 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 right. know his place. Yeah, man. Right, man. Moving on, man. Talk about old Walt Taylor, Major Taylor. Major Taylor, man. He got his name Major because he used to wear soldier uniform doing bicycle tricks. So Major Taylor was raised outside of Indianapolis. He ended up getting adopted by the, the same family yeah. family yeah that his daddy worked for who was a coachman so major taylor ended up enjoying the the fruit and the spoils of being adopted by a wealthy white family he was alternating between the black world of the farm and the family of his adopted world with expensive toys and the upper class values and he had private tutors but the white family left for the midwest and left taylor behind but they gave him a late model safety bicycle, which had become all the rage. And he took that bicycle and he started earning him money doing tricks at the local bicycle store. And, and that's where he got his name, Major yeah. Taylor, because he used to earn a little money. By the time he was 13, he became a professional cyclist. cyclist, right? And then by the time he was 18 years old, he had broke the world record by 8.2 seconds. Major Taylor went on to win countless races and he became one of the most famous athletes out of America in cycling. Actually, he was the the top cyclist. He was our Lance Armstrong back in the days. And it's funny how I never heard of Major Taylor until I read me as well, too. I had never heard of Major Taylor, man. And Major Taylor was very a very influential person in the, the overall United States cycling history as itself but for some reason he's buried 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 deep down inside of uh american history as it pertains to cycling major taylor right. was a major part but major taylor also thought that he was above being black and he should get special treatment as well and with that he had a strained relationship with his daughter because his daughter was growing growing up to be a little bit more militant and wanting mm-hmm. to have a voice, and he used to always condemn that. And his and his daughter used to be like, "Dad, why are you not speaking out?" And he used to condemn her and saying, "Why you? Why are you speaking out?" But anyway, with that attitude, she she ended up having a strained relationship with him, and his wife ended up leaving him, and he ended up dying up, yeah. up in a chair. That's a very sad story, man. It's a very sad story because of the fact I think at, at some point in time in his life he kind of lost. 
lost uh, lost the concept of the as the author would say the the overall meaning of what it meant to be a black person and how. It, well, no, you know what? I wouldn't even say that. I say that he just, he just lost identity, man. He was going through identity crisis. Identity crisis as far as thinking he he had to be exposed to it in some shape, form, or fashion. But I can even I can even man, say he ever had it. Then just because you exposed to it, don't mean that you had it. So he was like a Tiger Woods. Maybe that's why we don't know about him. Maybe he chose wrong. Maybe he thought that he was one of them, and they was like, "You ain't one of us." We don't give a damn about you. And because he turned his back on us, we like, shit, we ain't going to uplift you neither. Mm-hmm. Dog, let's get on Rue Foster. Rue Foster was like a, Rue Foster kind of remind me of uh, a Master P in today's world. You wouldn't even say that? I would say a Master P of his entrepreneurship I, skills, man. I would say man. more so like Ice Cube. And the big three. I can say both of them. And I can and, and tell you okay. why I say both of them. I say, me, I, say Ma- I, I say both of them, right? So, well, Master P was a person that was based upon, like, you know what? I see what I see how this industry is going. I see how the game is being played, right? Well, let me, let me get my own resources and then let me produce my own artists put my own formula together and make as much as amount of money as possible in the music industry. Right. And what I, and so I was, so I respect Rube Foster's uh, entrepreneurship skills and understanding that in that particular time, the Negro league and African-American players only had a certain sector to play in. Now there was other Negro leagues that was out and available, but Rube Foster's formula and his system was the most successful because of the way he ran it and his mindset and his foresight, right? Now, I would tie it into Ice Cube because of the fact that Ice Cube runs his own league, the Big Three League. He found a sec- he found a sector within the market that he can exploit uh, in a good way. You got retired NBA players that's not even that old that still has some juice and some game left they're playing a half-court basketball game, and they're giving the audience great content, great entertainment, and he's benefiting the majority of the money that comes to that. And Rule Foster was the same kind of person as well, too, as far as with his players able to benefit most of the money that came towards the, the Negro League baseball teams. And Rule Foster more so wanted to seat at the table, well, more so a partnership instead of just being a, a self-serving Negro and you explored my actual lead. So he was more so protecting the lead as a whole. All right. The, the book states Foster was a pioneer, but not in the same way. His innovation wasn't being the first black in a white defined institution. He was a man of clear, resolute and uncompromising vision. He wanted professional lead of black players that was owned, organized, managed and played by African-Americans. So he like, look, I don't want to be a part of your league or I don't want to start a league up under your direction and playing in your stadium and playing by your rules. I want to have a league that's totally 100% operated, ran and managed by black people. And what we do is we're going to attract the black crowd or the white people who want to come and see how we play our base, our style of baseball. Y'all come and join us too. But what we're going to do is we're going to do it our way. And then we're going to build it big enough where 
it's going to be like the uh, Tom Molyneux and Tom Cribs. Y'all saying y'all the, the, the World Series champions? Yeah, y'all the white World Series champions because y'all ain't met no real competition over here. So after a while, you're going to see, are you really the best? Do you really think that you're really that good? Because you ain't played us yet. Y'all good with white, non-athletic people with two left feet. So, so what he did was he built that lead that was totally autonomous. And another thing about Rube Foster was that he was so shrewd and so organized that he picked out the names of the teams. He picked out the color of, the, of their uniforms, the design of their uniforms. He did all the bookings for the games, organized the, the gate. He did it all. He did it all. And he did so much that it drove him crazy. Do you think it actually drove him crazy? Or do you think he just had a lot on his shoulders? Or do you think, I think it was a conspiracy theory as well, too. I think the reason that he went yeah, to the crazy yeah, house. I, I thought about with his that. Wife, you know, I thought with his wife. Yeah, yeah with I his thought wife. that. I mean, I thought that he was growing too powerful and the, the powers that be shot us some money because. Uh, yeah, that, yeah because he was young. And the story of Rue Foster was he was living in Chicago and and his wife called the police on him because she said that he was going crazy and, and he had a manic episode and he was throwing things around and whatnot. And so they came, they put him in a straitjacket. She pretty much Baker act him. And um and they took him to the crazy house. Right. As the time passed, and he was like, Baby, 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 I'm I'm good. Take me back, baby, I'm good. And he wanted to get out, and only she can uh, allow him to get out but by that time hell she probably had a new boyfriend they was probably running up his credit cards speculation what could possibly be true because somebody like rude foster man if you're married to somebody that's a visionary a go-getter why would you let that go and you know back then man women would take care of their men you only as yeah. good as the woman that you pick. That you pick, that you choose. Yeah, that's what's that's why it's, that's why it makes me think that it had to be some kind of conspiracy behind it. If you think about the woman at that particular time frame, you know, you had a lot of stay at home moms or stay at home wives. The guy would go out, you know, and 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 get the bacon, and then the, bring the bacon home to the wife, and the wife would cook it or whatnot. But so it was it was. <laughs> Right, let me go get it right. Go get the bacon, the milk, the eggs, the cheese, the whole nine. <laughs> Here, baby. <laughs> white, so his white cone, bake him a cake. <laughs> but anyway. Right. right. Yeah, baby. <laughs> I got I got the bacon, yeah, I got the cheese, the eggs, the butter, and the sugar. You know what to do. <laughs> Hurry up, got that. Right, you know. Little thing got that. <laughs> Yeah, man. So that's what I'm thinking. Like, it's some, it's something had to be. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm gonna look more into that as well, too, man. It's some, it's some, it's some suspicious about that story. Yeah, it is. You know about this story. Or, and, and also think about. I mean, if you're married to a guy that's very busy, a guy that's a visionary, as you were saying, that guy doesn't have a lot of time to be empathetic to your to your needs as a woman as well, too. So she could have had like a Jody. Yeah, Jody got your girl and gone. Right. You know what I mean? At the same but, time, the, doing. During the Negro League, when the Negro League was at its height, you had old Brands Ricky lurking around and taking notes. Brands, they said Brands Ricky exploited the psychological soft spot within American community 
the desire to measure up that made the in invasion go infinitely smoother. They refer to integration as the invasion. And some historians contribute the demise of the Negro League to integration. So I think that early on, they found that, hey, this integration thing could help us more than it can hurt us. Keep the product. We can own the infrastructure and just give them pennies and let them continue to make the product. So. Yeah, so it was so integration was more so all benefit for uh, the power structure. It was even a way to even strengthen the power structure if you think about it, you know, because of the fact that they didn't have to. It was there was no power transfer. All it was is we taking the best players from your your league. They're gonna join our league. Uh, we'll take a few of your coaches. Well, not even your coaches. Just all we pretty much want the product. The product, and we'll leave you with the scraps. And our league should be able to survive because of the fact now that we got some of those black dollars as well, too, that can be able to patronize right. our game. I want to read one more passage out of the book okay. where he was describing Branch Rickey. In his years okay. of scouting Negro League teams, he became intimately familiar with the athletic ability of players. And with something far more essential, he became familiar with the sense of longing, the burden of proof, the haunting many of them. Ricky understood how desperately black players wanted to play in the major league and more significantly, how desperate the national black community with a hunger for access to mainstream wanted black players to play and succeed in the white man's game. Indeed, this element of black life, this hunger to succeed was a commodity Ricky was after when he campaigned to integrate Major League Baseball at the behest of the Dodgers directors. The Negroes were invaded for talent as much as Africa was invaded for human labor. I agree on that. But I, I would say, do you think we're giving Branch Ricky too much credit? So I'm, I'm going to put a spin on this thing, right? So Branch Ricky, he saw a league that he can take players from, right? And then he also saw it wasn't no constant. It wasn't too many major consequences that he could face from taking shit from right. a black person. There's no taking anything from a black person. You see what I'm saying? So I can say, ain't no penalty at all. So okay, the only penalty that I can possibly get is pushback from the owners. But when I push the when I provide this information with the owner, say, hey, look, man. We got this whole black market. We can make more money by having some of these players on our on our team. We can win more. If, if it's really about the bottom line, the ball club about the bottom line, let's use these players to get to the bottom yeah. line and win more games and put more asses in the seats. So I, I think we could just be giving Branch Ricky a little bit so more credit than he deserves. Saying he just saw the dollar. He didn't. He saw it on the surface level. Like, look, man, I can. We can get more people in the seats. Be a little bit more entertaining. And, and they have some special talent out there. <laughs> Simple as that. Simple as that. That could be it. <laughs> I want to talk about segregation and the dichotomy in the minds on how on one hand they didn't want to integrate, right? But on the other hand, how they saw the pitfalls of segregation as it relates to them. And they said segregation helped maintain social order 
but created a fear that removed the gaze of whites. African-Americans would become free of the spell of white supremacy. And in an 1891 pamphlet, William Bruce, a Baltimore lawyer, wrote that most Southern Negroes still maintain under the spell of conscience mastery of the whites. He warned, however, that the process of segregation was creating a situation where the Negro increasingly isolated from the direct influence of whites will become more and more aggressive. In white minds, the danger in allowing blacks to be off on their own unto themselves was that it allowed them to withdraw completely into separate Damn. communities beyond the reach of the effect of white surveillance. Kind of remind you of right. what happened with Tulsa, uh, Oklahoma in 1921. You know, these Negroes gone off in, in the boondocks in uh, Oklahoma. And next thing you know, we look up, they got skyscrapers, cars, fancy clothes. Airplanes, you know, them niggas out doing shit. themselves. Yeah, you know, they, they they looking us in the eyes when we go over there. Them niggas ain't got no goddamn humility. But let me speed up. Chapter five, integration, the dilemma of inclusion without power. Integration. Dog, so this chapter, uh, to sum it all up, they talk about the significance of the 1970 game against USC and Bear Bryant's Crimson Tide. Now, before this game, Bear Bryant and the Crimson Tide, as they do today, had a history of winning football games and a history of football and beating the brakes yeah. off people, right? So USC was right. one of the first, if not the first, PWI to integrate, and they integrated their football team, wisely enough. And so they bought their integrated team into Tuscaloosa. The only reason why they were safe in bringing them darkies into town is because people of Alabama respect their head football coach, and they had much respect and reverence for Bill Bryant. So they made sure that this was going to be a safe game. They didn't count That's for game, right, Sam right. Cunningham, it was, it was game, the USC running back. Now, Cunningham was totally oblivious to the significance of this game because he grew up in Santa Barbara, California. And in Santa Barbara, California, and on the West Coast period, they were a little bit more progressive than they were on the East Coast and especially in the South. But he the was South young South and naive correct. and he didn't really understand. Only thing he knew is if you put the football in my chest, I'm going to run and score me some touchdowns. <laughs> That's all I know. All I know is right. juke, spin, run, jump, touchdown. Right, and that's what he did. He juke spin, ran, jump, and scored some touchdowns, and a whole bunch of them against Alabama, and they beat the brakes off Alabama. Bear Bryant took off his hat and scratched his head. He was like, "Shit, I need to get me some of them fast niggas on my team." <laughs> hey, I totally agree. I think it was exposed that hell, if we want to compete in the SEC. Or the the whatever conference they was in at the time, we got to be able. Well, it was the SEC. We want to be, be in the SEC, also on the nationals uh, landscape. Right. We got to get us some niggas, man. Right. We got to we got we got to drop the ideals of, of Mr. George Wallace, segregation now, segregation then, and segregation forever. We got to drop those idealistic thought processes and say, man, we got to get us some niggas, so we got we gonna be able to win. If not, or we're not at least to we need to drop them on the football field. <laughs> segregation now 
Segregation tomorrow. Segregation forever. <laughs> Riding around in that little uh, tank car. <laughs> but anyway, uh, I digress. They said that Sam Cunningham did more for integration in those two hours than Martin Luther King did his whole Martin life. That yeah, was a stunning statement to me. How important sports is in America and how sports expands both right. races. With that being said, they started comprising a plan to be able to integrate sports, just get the black talent, yet keep the white coaches in the white structure. And that's what they did. And when they did that, that essentially was the demise of black college football. Black college football had the first pickings of the top athletes in the state. So imagine, imagine like in the state of Alabama, all that talent, they would go to Tuskegee, Alabama State, or Alabama A&M, right? Or Florida, like to Florida A&M. And then Louisiana, you had Southern and Grambling University. That's why they were powerhouses. That's why Grambling was able to having the most NFL players coming out of college only second to Notre Dame. Right. Also, with the many Southern-born athletes that are coming out of those home states, it was driving distance so the whole entire family can go and see their son or their nephew or cousin play. So it used to be like a family event to get in your car and travel like a couple of hours on a Saturday afternoon to watch a HBCU game. So they have more of a connection with the state and with the community. It was more like an event. And also, like, like circling back to Sam Cunningham, as we were saying earlier, that when Sam Cunningham was running the ball, um, he made a statement. He said that I had no idea of like the when I was playing the game, I had I was just out playing the game. I was a freshman, my first time traveling out of state, first time traveling to play varsity football. I had no idea of the impact of the social impact I was going to have on the actual football game and the people down in Alabama. So he was like socially unaware of what he was actually doing as when he was running through Alabama, you know, because he, he wasn't exposed to that. He wasn't even exposed to that, man. And he said also later on down the line when his teammates wanted to come back, make a documentary or make a film about what happens in, in those events that I mean, he said he, he also wanted to just leave the events of how, how there was and, and not add any kind of extra Hollywood spin on the uh, on the actual events. That was that was kind of shocking to me as well too, because I would think that hey man, why not cash in on something that you did, you know, twenty years ago? But right to each his own, to each his own. But back to what you were saying as far as it being a, a family event, a, a non-family event. Now, y'all totally think agree. Community I think that in terms of college sports, the local community is a disconnect because a lot of colleges don't recruit in their own backyard. They'll go and get somebody from Pompano Beach, Florida, bring them up to Toledo, Ohio, and play cornerback when they got a cornerback that's, that's around the corner. Right. 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 Yeah, yeah, yeah. And even with that, like even 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 what you're saying that we only had a few players uh, when I played college football, we only had a few players on our team that was actually from the city of Toledo and any surrounding cities for that. We maybe had five on average. Yeah. So moving on, the final chapter we're going to discuss, chapter six, the dilemma of appropriation style. So chapter six, he really gets into 
how we were going from the old guard and Jackie Robinson into Willie Mays. Although Jackie Robinson bought something new to the game, he bought stealing the bases and lining up off the base and being really fast. You had somebody like Willie Mays was the star in his era. Because like I said, the common theme in this book is the author giving you from his point of view and his right, perspective. Right. So we'll keep showing you examples on how we move from being a slave and an athlete as a jockey, but you still don't have any control and any freedom. You might have the illusion of freedom, but you don't have the freedom and control moving forward to now. You're free, supposedly, but you're not really free. You don't have freedom. And which one of the things back then, the shackles were visible. And today, now the shackles are invisible. So we're going to tie that in. We're moving on to chapter six, talking about style. One thing that he did mention in chapter six, he did really go into Willie Mays and how Willie Mays transformed baseball. Jackie Robinson broke the barrier. Willie Mays changed baseball. Willie Mays had kids out in the street trying to do the things that he did. You know, like he would catch fly balls, not over his head, but down at his waist, and then throw it. Like, you say, like, Jackie Robinson, and, and I think they both was very important for the area as well, too, because Jackie Robinson was one of the first that was on, like, the national TV on the national scale. He had to play a certain kind of baseball. He had to play more so clean cut, well shaven, and he also was a little bit older when he came into the major leagues as well too. Jackie Robinson was around twenty eight years old when he entered into the major leagues. He all he already had a wife. He had a family, you know. Willie Mays, when he came into the major league, he was right. twenty. Right. Willie Mays was like kid. Yeah, he was a kid. Yeah, he was one a writer. Willie Mays is in the days. And Thompson's lost his vigor, but Irvin wax for Ooh. all the blacks. Ain't it good to be a nigga? Days <laughs> <laughs> is in the days. Yeah, man. Well, <laughs> I was gonna say, like I said, Willie Mays has style, soul, and grace. And then the author started talking about like how do, how does a person get soul? And he was saying that well, when he was younger, he watched Willie Mays play baseball. And Willie Mays did everything so effortlessly, right? How you were saying the basket catch, how he was saying that Willie Mays would make a catch or throw a guy out from running around the three bases or whatnot. And he would do it so nonchalantly that people in the stands and people that was like none of the black culture, they would think that he was like showboating. But no, nah, he wasn't showboating. All he was doing was being Willie Mays. Oh, <laughs> he had food. Oh. All right. I mean, I ain't got to put all that effort into it. I mean, what you want me to do? I just put it out there. I mean, God damn, you act like I did it and caught a right. cartwheel, did a cartwheel. I just, you know, just caught the ball. Yeah, it just, it just goes down to black folks being more coordinated. That's it. Coordinated. You got to realize that back when I, when I was speaking earlier, athleticism and dancing was a part of our culture. That was like spiritual for us. That was the way yeah. that we honored our deities. That was a part of our lifestyle. So it didn't leave our DNA when we brought it over here. That was the way we moved. That was the way we talked. That was the way we chew our gum. That was the way we walked. You know, it was just, it just flowed natural like the rivers. 
Yeah. And that's just runs through Black's DNA. Right. One more person that I wanted to bring up. Every new wave of Black athletes coming into sports and integrating sports, you had like this vigor and this eagerness to bring something new into the game. And they say, hey, I see the game needs this. Y'all don't have this. Let's start doing this and make this better, right? So with every generation that comes in after Jackie Robinson and Willie Mays and with every sport that they integrated, they was like, man, y'all been drinking unsweet tea. Let me show you how this tea (laughs) tastes with a little sugar. Man, have you had sweet tea with a little splash of honey? Yeah. So R.C. Owens came into the game and he bought his own flavor. What he did for football, he introduced the jump ball in football. So he was a receiver, and he would go, and he noticed that the defenders couldn't jump as high as he did. So the quarterback would just put the ball up in the air, and he would just jump over everybody and catch the ball, right? So they had to start redoing defenses to defend that. And that translated and went over into basketball. So in the book, R.C. Owens essentially bought alley hooping into basketball. Yeah, which is crazy to me because of the fact I never knew that. It it, it kind of it just goes back to what the author was saying as far as uh, football. But R.C. Owens also was a basketball player prior to what the author talked about as well. He talked about how R.C. Owens, when he finished college, he did a one-year tour with the country playing on an all-star basketball team. And then that next year, he joined a professional football team. And then while he was at practice, right? Right. While he was at practice trying to make the team, what happened is that in football, you have a scout team. The scout team go against the starters, right? So R.C. Owens was on the scout team. So the scout team Mm -hmm. going against the starters, the scout team quarterback, the scout team receivers, the scout team are the players that are trying to make the number one roster spot they're like the number two players on the team right so they're in practice and the quarterback is basically rc owens at wide receiver he's going off for a pass the quarterback lobs the ball up and rc owens because he has his basketball ability what he has going for himself he has timing and he also has the ability to be able to box out a person in basketball basketball is all about positioning you know you got to position your body get your hips on the person's body to, to box them out in order to jump up at, at a time to be able to catch the pass. And that's that's what R.C. Owens was able to do and master with his previous basketball skills and translate it over into football. And the, all the quarterback would do just toss the ball up real, real high, and R.C. Owens would go and get that bitch. <laughs> <laughs> hey, the book says, for Owens' style became a tool for survival. He realized that if he planned to make the team, he had to do something different. Fortunately, for the 24-year-old rookie, he could jump at a time when jumping wasn't considered to be an integral part of the game. You know, the game was so nascent at the time and so deprived of athletic ability, it was wide open. Everybody can find their niche. The mainstream would be like, oh, my God, he came up with that. And everybody (laughs) black sitting looking like, man, (laughs) we've been doing that shit. Yeah, come on and check us out. Grambling playing Alcorn this weekend. You enjoy the athletic feat, and you will really enjoy our band. (laughs) Sit back and enjoy. (laughs) But also, with R.C. Owens, he was able to win two football games 
that year with that same pretty much alley hoop pass. And his stats for that year, he was second on the team in receptions. He had 27 receptions, but he had like 10 touchdowns that year as well, too, and had over 500-something yards. The other guy on the team, the lead receiver, had over 54 receptions, and he had almost the same amount of yards as R.C. had as well. But R.C. had half the amount of catches that the guy had, you know, but he had way more touchdowns than the guy. was showing that way more right. productive. You got a, a greater probability and chance that you throwing the ball to R.C., your ass going to score a touchdown. <laughs> <laughs> Get the ball to me. And let me show you what I can do. And let me show you what I can do. Also, in that same chapter, R.C. talked about when he was traded to a new team that doing practice, uh, because right. he can jump so high uh, doing special teams. Special teams, for our listeners that don't uh, uh, watch football, is is an acting with it's a special play. It's a one play. You get one-on-one opportunity to, to do this play in the football game, right? And this situation was an extra point where the kicker kicks the ball through the goalpost, right? So R.C. Owens, real, real tall and using his athletic ability and also using his brain, he was like, you know what? I think I can jump and block the damn kick and they can't make the score with an extra point. So what he did is he stood by the goalpost, right? And when the kicker would, when the kicker kicked the ball, he just jump up in the air and just swat the ball out of the air, and it would be like a <laughs> a block kick, and they wouldn't get the point. So he did it one time in the game. The next game, they outlawed the a person being at the goalpost blocking down the kick. As we move forward, they create a brand new finish line. Hope you enjoyed. Please click the subscribe button to whatever podcast platform you're listening to. And remember to stay tuned in, stay learning, and keep reading.